And good evening, you wonderful, wonderful geeky people. Welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here again with another hour of news, views and reviews. And we are going to be a little bit review heavy this week because, let's be honest, we've not done reviews for ages. So if you wanted to know what I thought of, I don't know, Ahsoka or the Marvels or Doctor Who, well, keep listening. Guess here we go. Okay, so for the first time in what feels like an age, there is new Doctor Who. Oh, yes. Yes. The Star Beast was out on Saturday, the 25th of November. That's last Saturday, if you're listening to this, on the day it drops. And uh, I'm going to do a quick non-spoilery review, and then I'm going to get into it. It is still available, along with, well, the rest of Doctor Who, on the BBC iPlayer, if you have access to that, if you are in the UK, which if you're listening on HCR, you definitely are. Go watch it if you haven't watched it already. If you even like Doctor Who just a tiny little bit, just just give it a watch. I, I My non-spoiler review is this. In short... I think it's fair to say that I liked it. I liked lots about it. Am I completely uncritical? No, I am not. What did I like about it, though? What unspoilery? What can I say that 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 just underlines what I liked? All right. First of all, the Star Beast is based loosely, certainly very heavily influenced on uh, a comic strip from Doctor Who magazine, Doctor Who Weekly, I think it was then, uh, published back in 1980, called actually I'm not sure what it was called. I think it might just have been called the Star Beast. Uh, but it was written by uh, Pat Mills and it was illustrated by Dave Gibbons. And in the opening titles, it says right up there on the screen, Star Beast, written by Russell T. Davis, from a story by Pat Mills and Dave Gibbons. That is the kind of recognition that comics creators should get every time their work is a major influence on a piece of TV or film, and it never is. So good on the BBC, good on Bad Wolf, and good on Russell T. Davis for giving Pat Mills and Dave Givens, two giants of the comics industry, their due. Because frankly, they deserve it. I liked the way the 14th Doctor and Donna were reintroduced to the audience, and I liked them. I very much liked Donna's daughter. Wasn't expecting a child, but works perfectly. Um, I like Donna's long-suffering husband. I thought he was well done. I loved um, Donna's mum and the way she reacted to the return of the Doctor. Uh, anything else I wanted to say about what I liked about this thing would be... Oh, no, no. I also liked the wheelchair-using uh, unit science advisor and the fact that she crossed her legs, much to the consternation of ignorant people on the internet, uh, about which more later in the full review. And I loved, loved, loved the new TARDIS. Oh, what a perfect thing. But most of all, and we'll, again, we'll talk about this in the spoiler a bit, but most of all, I loved the 14th Doctor's reaction to seeing the new TARDIS. And I'm going to 
I'd be prepared to bet if I were a betting man, I would be prepared to bet that that reaction was David Tennant's actual reaction to seeing that set for the first time, because I am absolutely clear that it would have been mine. If you haven't seen the episode, you don't know what I'm talking about. Bear with me. There'll be a description, but only after we've sounded the spoiler horn from this point. Massive spoilers for Doctor Who, the Star Beast. Spoilers. Spoilers. Okay, so we start with a bit of a weird introductory bit. I didn't really like it. I get why it was there. This is, after all, the launch of a brand new era in Doctor Who. And you can see that if you watch it on the iPlayer. Doctor Who is broken down into three distinct time zones 1963 to 1996 which i still think of as classic who uh, and then 2005 to 2022 and then 2023 to so it's very clear that this new era of doctor who is a new beginning in the minds of everyone concerned and yeah i can see that Although Doctor Who is still a BBC property, and that's really important to remember, the BBC still own Doctor Who. It's not made by the BBC anymore. It's made for the BBC and Disney Plus by Bad Wolf Studios, run by Russell T. Davis. Now, again, I'm fine with that at the moment. I really hope that the BBC maintains a firm hand on the tiller. However, as long as Russell T. Davis is in charge, I am not concerned. But It's now been set adrift on the big wide world and theoretically, therefore, anyone could take command of Doctor Who. And I'm nervous about that, particularly when some of the money is coming from Disney, because Disney are brilliant at destroying IP. So nervous still, but okay. but still definitely a new era. It's also the 60th anniversary. And that means I'm okay with them bringing back David Tennant to be the 14th Doctor. I was. It's not that I hated the idea. I kind of did, actually. I kind of did. But Doctor Who has always been a forward looking show. It's always been what's next. It's always been running to the future. And what Doctor Who has never done, ever, really, is look back. Even when we've had multi Doctor stories. It's been always bringing the old Doctor to now. And they've always been the old Doctor. Whereas now we've brought back an old face to be a new Doctor. And I I wasn't sure about that, but I get it. It achieves two things. First of all, if this is a new beginning and this is the start of something new, It's also the 60th anniversary. I don't think it would be fair to ask Shuti Gatwa to launch that new era and celebrate the 60th anniversary at the same time. Anniversaries are a time for nostalgia. And love him or hate him, and I know some people don't like him, but love him or hate him, David Tennant as the 10th Doctor is probably the most beloved of the modern Doctors. We can't really bring back any of the classic Doctors, they're all ancient now. But we can bring back one of the modern Doctors, and of the modern Doctors, David Tennant is A, probably the most popular, B, certainly the best known globally, and C, 
the one who was almost certainly going to say yes. So a three episode, what we're going to call it, an interregnum period between Jodie Whittaker and the new Doctor Shooty Gatwa. Yeah, OK. If we're going to have that to celebrate the 60th, of course, David Tennant. Why not? So we achieve that. We also achieve the thing whereby the returning show showrunner, something else has never happened. The returning showrunner gets to write the big wrong, something that is still regarded as Russell T. Davis's cardinal sin. And that is the treatment of Donna Noble, a woman who was deprived of her agency and had her mind wiped against her will. Yes, to save her life. But it's what she specifically said she did not want. And for many fans, that's been the thing that has really rankled about Russell T. Davis's time on Doctor Who. So this is a chance to set that right. And that's what this episode does. So what is about this episode? Well, we start with the newly reincarnated Doctor, played by David Tennant, with stunning hair. I mean, the 10th Doctor's hair was always a bit extreme, but the 14th Doctor's hair? What is going on? There is so much product on that man's head. Keep him away from naked flames is what I'm saying. Anyway, he's wandering through London and he literally runs in to Donna Noble. Carrying a big pile of boxes. And he stops to help her and then realises who she is and he's about to run away, but she isn't having that. And she doesn't remember him. She's just treating him as a man in the street and she has something to say about his suit. You know, no man over. Th you can wear a suit that tight up to about 35, but not a moment longer. So we get that, which is a nice touch also, not only on Donna's forthrightness, but also the fact that David Tennant has aged. And, you know, that costume. Yeah, maybe when he was 35 is in many ways a way of acknowledging that the 14th Doctor is not the 10th Doctor. Something that, you know, Tennant said was definitely the case. We also at this point meet Rose, who is Donna's daughter. And we learn that the packages that Donna is carrying are roses. Uh, they are for her business, which she sells things to do by, apparently. While Donna is reorganising this massive stack of boxes, we see a spacecraft crashing. And everyone in the street is, you know, filming with their mobile and looking up. Everyone except Donna, who is oblivious, which is such a Donna trope. And literally, she stands up just in time to have missed the spacecraft crashing. The story then involves Rose, as Donna's daughter, meeting this cute, fluffy creature who goes, me, a lot, and rescuing it, hiding it in her shed, uh, hiding it amongst soft toys, which is a scene that I remember from E.T. Uh, and what I'm not sure about is whether that scene is from the comic or not. If it's from the comic, then it predates E.T. If it's not, then it's a nice nod to E.T. Either way, liked it. And it's clear that sort of insect-like looking monstery type folks are looking for this cute little meep. But because this is based on a story by the comic writing genius Pat Mills, there is, of course, a twist. And the twist is that the ugly insectoid things are, in fact, good. And the cute little meep is the last survivor of the most evil race in the universe after the Daleks or something. But in the end, everything is resolved. Doctor and Donna end up trying to essentially turn off the Meep's spaceship because it uses a double dagger drive, which will burn up the whole of London as fuel. 
if it takes off. And so they're desperate to save London. And the Doctor, in order to achieve this, has to bring back the Doctor Donna. He has to give Donna her memories back. And he doesn't want to. And he says, look, if I do this, it will kill you. And Donna says, well, yeah, but I'll save my daughter and my husband and my mum and nine million other people. And so reluctantly he does. And they have 55 seconds before she burns out and they manage to turn off the spaceship and everything is saved. But Donna doesn't die. What has happened? Well, twist. Brilliant twist. There's a there's a whole memory thing where in order in order to sort of reactivate Donna's memories, there's a, a sequence of words the doctor has to say, which nobody would say by accident kind of thing. And the last word of that is binary. And reason Donna is not burned up by the Time Lord energy inside her is that it's shared with her child, who is, well, is the character herself at that point describes herself as non-binary. She's previously been presented as trans, and we're going to come back to that. Whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, Wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. Uh, the, the fact that Donna's child has been caught up in all of this means that the child is not one gender and is able to share the absorbed energy and, in fact, also share in Dr. Donna's knowledge, which means she's also able to help with the deactivation of the Meep's ship. So that's all done. The Meep is captured. On we go. And there's a there's a, a, a hilarious, which I'm not sure I liked, actually, bit in the new TARDIS where the Doctor and Donna are going to do one last trip just to see Wilf. And Donna spills coffee on the time on the, the, the time console thing and the time the, the TARDIS goes haywire. And into next episode we go. That's roughly the plot. But that's not why it's good. That's not certainly not the only reason it's good. It's good. First of all, I love the character of Rose. I'm sure some people are going to be saying things along the lines of, mm, well, that's just box ticking. Why did why did she have to be trans? Well, look, why did the character have to be trans? The character didn't have to be trans. That was a decision made by the writer. But why did the character have to be anything? Why, did the, why does the character have to be male? Why does the character have to be female? Why does the character have to be black or white or alien or human or whatever? It, it's entirely always at the whim of the storyteller. The storyteller thought it was a good thing for the character to be. End of. Like, there is no further discussion to be had there, as far as I'm concerned. Does it matter that the character is trans? Yeah. Yeah, I think it probably does. For the same reason that it matters that the unit science advisor is in a wheelchair and can still cross her legs. Uh, so let's let's deal with the whole thing. Look, let's deal with both together. OK. Rose is trans. That's the least interesting thing about Rose, as far as I'm concerned. But there will have been some young people watching Doctor Who who finally saw themselves. Somebody like them. Somebody who's going through the same thing they're going through. Will there be many? Probably not. But there will be some. And there will be some kids who are beginning to struggle with how they feel and not quite understanding how they feel. And maybe some of them will have looked at Rose and gone, I wonder if that's me. 
And some of them will have looked at Rose and gone, well, no, that isn't me. And either way, that's useful for those kids. So well up for it for that reason. Representation matters. Uh, does it matter that the unit science advisor in a wheelchair? Not particularly. Um, what I what I objected to, I, there was one, one comment I saw on social medias, and not even on the hell site. It was actually on Blue Sky, where somebody said, I wouldn't have minded the science advisor being in a wheelchair if she hadn't crossed her legs and nobody had noticed or commented on it. To which I say, what do you mean you wouldn't have minded the unit science advisor being in a wheelchair? You don't get to mind. You don't get to have an opinion about whether people are in a wheelchair or not. Wheelchair users use wheelchairs because they use wheelchairs. That's not up for anyone's comment or discussion. And that's that's true in real life. It's true on telly. I will say, if they had taken an able-bodied actor and put them in a wheelchair just for the sake of ticking a box, that I would have objected to. But they did not. They cast an actor who has mobility difficulties because she had spina bifida. And so she uses a wheelchair in her everyday real life. And when she plays the unit science advisor, she remains in her wheelchair. Can she stand? Yeah. Yeah, she can. Can she move her legs? Yeah. Yeah, she can. Can she do that for very long? No, that's why she uses a wheelchair. Actually, useful for people to see that. Because I have seen people mutter when in the supermarket, somebody who's in a wheelchair has stood up to get something down off the top shelf as though they're somehow scamming people. Well, no, they're not. It's a mobility aid. Not everyone who uses a wheelchair has paralysis. It just, they, they don't. Nice to see that on the telly, actually. Nice to see that represented and not made a thing out of. And there was a really nice thing where they're in the steelworks where the Meeps ship is and all the unit soldiers are about to go dashing up to the ship and then they realise they're, go they're going to take the science advisor with them and then they realise there's a load of stairs and they just look and they're clearly embarrassed and she just goes, yeah, don't mind me, crack on or something to that effect. And actually, that's what I liked with Donna's mum. When Donna's mum is talking about Rose and Donna's mum uses she when she's talking about Rose, except for one comment. Donna's mum talking to Donna about Rose says, well, he never had that problem before he was and then stops herself. And Donna looks like thunder. And her mum's like, oh, God, I'm sorry. And Donna's like, no, it's all right. And I liked to see that, but because yes, people do struggle. If you knew somebody who presented male and you knew them as a boy and suddenly they're not a boy anymore and they present as female and they'd like to be called by a name that's not the name you've always known them by and they like to be called she and not he, that's difficult. And sometimes, yes. You will, if you're the grandma, you will slip up. And that's okay. I love that message. That 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 thing was look, it's better if you don't mess it up, but if you do, it's okay. You know, you don't have to be flustered by it. Just correct yourself and move on. And it was so clearly coming from a place of love and care. Unlike the idiot yobs that go past on their bikes as Rose and Donna are walking down their street 
uh, as they shout Rosa's dead name, which I'm not going to say out of respect for the character, which is weird because the character is fictional. I like that that was there too, because, you know, trans kids have issues to deal with. One of them is just straight up everyday bullying. So nice that that was in there. What else did I like? I liked that all the toys that Rose makes are actually, you know, sort of a clue if we'd been paying attention. I've gone back and watched it since. And if I'd been paying attention, I would have noticed that all of the toys are basically memories of Doctor Who monsters. So that's a clue that Rose is tied into her mum's memories somehow. You know, there's a Jadoon and an Ood and other creatures that Donna met. So I, I like that that was going on. I liked the science advisors, whose name I can't remember, Sylvia something. I, I loved the science advisor's wheelchair had weapons in it. It had a rocket launcher and stuff, uh, which is utterly bonkers and so Russell T. Davis. And actually, just you know what? So Doctor Who. Really, really liked that. Uh, I loved the techno babble. Release the gravity stanchions. I don't know what that means either, but it was funny. I, I loved all of that. I loved that it was fine to laugh. I loved that the reason the Doctor figured out that the meat was the villain was that they got fired on by the insect creatures. And when they were escaping in Donna's husband's taxi and the taxi sustained no damage. Loved that. I loved the Doctor putting on a wig and, and announcing that court was in session. I think Tom Baker did something fairly similar. Quick plug, check out Tom Baker doing something similar in the Stones of Blood on the BBC iPlayer. Oh, there was, there was so much I loved about it. I'm probably going to come back to this next week when we talk about the next episode of Doctor Who. Because there's another one on Saturday. Next Saturday, more Doctor Who. I know. But for now, we'll leave that there. As it happens, there are things that I have not said about Doctor Who that I really probably should have said, but I'll probably put those in next week's review of next week's episode. And um, we're going to stay on this review train because last week I did a whole non-spoilery thing about the Marvels, but we've blown the spoiler horn now. We might do it again. So let's get in depth on why, if you still can, you should go and see the Marvels on the big screen. So we're going to start with what's wrong with this, because there is so little wrong with this movie, in spite of what you've heard on the Internet, that I want to get the negatives out of the way at the start, because we don't need to dwell on them. They should be acknowledged, but we don't need to dwell on them. So what are the negatives? Well, basically, this isn't Captain Marvel 2. It is not a straight up sequel to Captain Marvel, as I mentioned last week. And I can see that narratively, 
that might have felt like a problem to the people who were making the movie because there is a lot of missing time. Captain Marvel, after all, is set in the 90s. And at the end of that movie, Captain Marvel tells Nick Fury that she's got some stuff to go and deal with, but she'll be back. And we don't see her again until Endgame, which is what? 20, 30 years later? What has happened in all of that time? I suspect that somewhere there is a sequel screenplay that details all of that. And for reasons best known to Disney, they decided, yeah, we're not going to bother with that. Which is a decision I could have respected if they'd stuck with it. But what they've actually done, it seems to me, is take a chunk of key points, highlights, if you will, from that Captain Marvel sequel, in which she goes back to Hela, the homeworld of the Kree, and does what she said she was going to do, which is take out the supreme intelligence, the AI that runs Kree society. And in doing so, she triggers a devastating civil war that leads to the almost destruction of Hela. Its oceans are gone. Its sky is burning. Its atmosphere is disappearing, which leads us to our big bad. And I think the reason I have a problem with her being the big bad is I just didn't care about this bit of the story. So we have this character whose name, as I record this, I actually can't even remember. She's got Ronin's hammer thing from... She's got Ronan's hammer thing from back in Guardians of the Galaxy, minus its Infinity Stone, obviously, but it's still, apparently, the ultimate weapon. And she uses this to crack open a rock that has the, the, the partner to Kamal's bangle. And again, what, really? Nah, nah, whatever. I, I, I honestly wasn't bothered by the fact that that didn't make any actual sense. I, I just... I just rolled with it because it didn't matter. It just wasn't important. It, it was filler to drive a plot that nobody cares about. This is not a plot driven movie. It's a character driven movie and all the better for it, I would argue, because the characters are so great and the interplay between the characters is so great. If you watched Ms. Marvel, you will know that at the very end of Ms. Marvel, Ms. Marvel uses her powers in her bedroom and vanishes. And a very confused Captain Marvel appears out of Ms. Marvel's closet and just looks very confused. And we start, actually, this movie starts before that moment and we get a bit of an introduction to the world of Kamala Khan through the eyes of Kamala Khan using the kind of animated sketches that you will be familiar with if you saw them as Marvel TV show. If you didn't, I suspect you can just pick it up there. Who Kamala Khan is, I think it's nicely explained at the beginning. And I think it's assumed that we know who Captain Marvel is. I think what we don't really get is any explanation about Monica Rambeau. We... We are told that she's got powers. Uh, before we even see her using them, she's 
doing a spacewalk outside Nick Fury's space station. And somebody suggests that, you know, well, we've got a superhero here who could probably do this a bit quicker, referring to Monica. Again, if we are nitpicking, I do think they could have been a little bit clearer here with who Monica Rambeau is and where those powers came from. Because Captain Marvel clearly doesn't know that Monica has powers. And Monica herself clearly does not know the the, the extent of these powers. There's uh, a fun bit where, for reasons, Kamala finds herself falling from like 20,000 feet. And Nick Fury kind of looks at Monica and says, well, now would be a really good time for you to fly. And Monica does it. How does Ms. Marvel find herself falling from 20,000 feet? Well, that's because of the central MacGuffin that is driving the character part of this movie. Basically, you've got three connected characters. You've got Captain Marvel. You've got Ms. Marvel. And you've got Monica Rambeau, who steadfastly refuses through the entire movie to have a code name. She's called Photon in the comics, apart from the moments when she's called Spectrum. I'm not sure which one she's currently going by. I think the most recent comic series featuring her was called Photon. Uh, but she doesn't have that name in the movie. She's just Monica. Now, something else we know if we've watched WandaVision is that Monica has a beef with Carol. They have known each other a long time. Carol Danvers, Captain Marvel, was her mum's best friend. They were both in the Air Force. They were both female pilots at a time when female pilots couldn't do combat missions. And they had that camaraderie together. Monica was a little girl when Carol knew her. And Carol used to call her Lieutenant Trouble. And there was clearly a sort of anti-daughter sort of bond going on there between them. And the last thing that Carol said to Monica before she flew off to sort out Cree was, I'll be back soon. And young Monica didn't see Carol again. In the meantime, Carol's mother developed cancer and... Monica was with her mother, who was getting chemotherapy, when Monica disappeared in the blip. When she came back five years later, her mother had died. And Carol was still nowhere to be seen as far as Monica knew. And Monica felt, understandably, more than a little abandoned. What we get in flashback here is that we know that Carol Danvers came back before the blip was resolved. We know that. And what we see is some interaction between Monica's mother and Carol in that time. So Carol got to see Monica's mum before Monica's mum died. Monica didn't. And that is clearly some unresolved business. They work through it during the course of the movie. And it's nice to see that character growth going on. I, I really appreciated that. Kamala Khan has no beef with Carol. Kamala Khan is Carol Danvers' biggest flipping fan. And she is fangirling all over the place. Her fantasy has long been to team up 
with Captain Marvel to maybe be an Avenger. And now here she is working with Captain Marvel. And she is constantly, you can see her as a character, constantly just pausing for a beat. <laughs> You're Captain Marvel. And she's clearly loving every second of it. And that's great. Why is she working with Captain Marvel? Well, as I said, that's the MacGuffin. The three characters are connected through their powers. And when one of them uses their powers, they all kind of switch places. Which is how Kamala comes to be falling from 10,000 feet or 20,000 feet or whatever it is. Because Captain Marvel uses her powers and flies off into the air. But because she's used her powers and flown off into the air, she switches places with Kamala. Who suddenly is at very high altitude where Captain Marvel was a second ago. But unfortunately, uh, she can't fly. So, you know, problem. And what drives this movie and what makes this movie work, actually, is those three characters coming to terms with the fact that if they're going to use their powers, they're going to keep switching and figuring out how to use that and how to make that work. There's a brilliant sort of training montage sequence where they're doing double dutch skipping and also using their powers so that one second you're holding the rope and the next you're doing the skipping and then the next you're holding the other end of the rope and so on. And it's just brilliantly, brilliantly visualised and demonstrated. And I really, really liked that. And of course, if you see Ms. Marvel, you might be thinking, is Kamala's family involved in this? Well, yes, they are. Of course they are. Because the first time Kamala switches places with Captain Marvel, she's at home, which means you get Carol Danvers coming down the stairs out of Kamala's bedroom and sort of coming down the stairs into the living room where the family is watching television and just sort of saying, hi, sorry about your wardrobe. And Kamala's family trying to deal with that. And then when we get properly into them changing, Kamala is in the, full, the aforementioned living room trying to explain to her parents what's going on when she switches places with Carol again. Only this time, Carol is in the middle of a battle with some Kree. And suddenly that battle's in the living room. And it all just gets out of hand really quickly and gloriously chaotically. And so Kamala's mum and dad and brother get sucked in to the thing. It's just beautifully done. I'm not going to tell you the story here because, as I say, the story doesn't matter. What matters are the set pieces, and they are brilliant. The first time Kamala switches places with Monica, Monica's doing a spacewalk outside Nick Fury's space, space station. So Kamala suddenly finds herself in a spacesuit, not quite knowing what's going on, and she's panicking and worrying, and then she drifts in front of Nick Fury's window and sees Nick Fury looking out at her, and she's immediately like, you're Nick Fury! Is, is this an Avengers test? Because of course it does. That's absolutely where her mind goes. But there are some great character beats as well, both tragic and hilarious. There's a really poignant moment where the big bad is restoring the atmosphere of Hala by essentially siphoning off the atmosphere from a world that is now a Skrull colony. And Kamala and Captain Marvel are trying to help the Skrull evacuate from that place. And there's a moment 
where they're packing the last people that they can fit onto the last ship that they can to get people out of there. And there are still people who are going to be left behind. And Captain Marvel and Monica basically tell Kamala to get her backside on this ship. Now we are leaving. And Kamala is horrified and confused. She said, but there are still people. How can we leave? And Captain Marvel just says, we've got to save the people that we can. And they do leave. And Kamala sees, and we as the audience see, the consequence of that decision. That by saving the people who got into that ship, they are leaving a whole bunch of people behind. And there's nothing they can do about that. And I really liked that because so often in superhero movies in particular, we see the hero save everyone. And the the point that's being made here is you can't. There is a thing that's happening and we can't stop it. And a lot of people are going to die. And all we can do is the best we can do. And that is not going to be good enough. And I like to see that in a superhero movie. I like that bit of realism. In a movie that is not particularly grim and gritty, you still get that acknowledgement that heroes can't fix everything. We also get the realisation that this is, at least in part, the hero's fault. We learn that the worlds that are being targeted by our big bad are being targeted because they are places that Captain Marvel herself cares about. If she was not connected to these people, they would not be at risk. And if she had not done what she did when she destroyed the Supreme Intelligence, the big bad would not be doing this at all. So although Carol Danvers is not responsible for the actions of our villain, she is also responsible for the actions of our villain. She is facing consequences of things that she did herself. And... That is also faced up to. Again, there's a very poignant moment when Monica challenges Carol and says, you know, you left. I was a little girl and you said you'd come back and you never did. And Carol tries to explain. She she didn't feel that she could come back because she'd done a thing, perhaps almost without thinking, believing it to be the for the best to free the Kree from the supreme intelligence. But she hadn't thought it through and she hadn't figured out what was going to replace that. And so she blames herself for the civil war. And of course she is, because it's her fault. That is a direct consequence of an action that she took without thinking. And she didn't feel she could come home until she'd fixed it. She didn't feel that she would be worthy of coming home until she'd fixed it. She wanted to come back and tell Monica that this is a thing that happened and I made it better. And Monica just looks at her and says, then you don't understand how family works. And again, that's so much the message of this film. That family, first of all, family is more than blood. Family is found. Family is where you find it, where you make it. And family is at the heart of this movie in a very real sense. You've got 
Kamala's family, her mum, her dad, her brother, they are so tight and they care so much for Kamala and she cares so much for them. Kamala will save the universe just to keep her family safe. And they, they will risk everything just to keep Kamala safe. Carol isn't a blood relation of Monica, but that doesn't mean she's not family. That doesn't mean that Monica doesn't see her as family. And family will always forgive you. More than that, we need that forgiveness. Every hero needs that forgiveness. It's so beautifully drawn and so subtle. It's not in your face, any of this. And I, I just loved seeing that be explored. Other really nice touches. Uh, we got to see Valkyrie when the scroll that have been rescued from our big bad need somewhere to go. Uh, first of all, they're very clear that they could well do without any more of Captain Marvel's help because they didn't feel she'd been any help at all. But they need somewhere to go. And Captain Marvel at least can do that for them. And we see Valkyrie arrive on the Rainbow Bridge and take them away with just a little peck on the cheek for Carol, suggesting perhaps that their relationship might be a little deeper. Now, I've heard people make a big thing about this and uh, say that, oh, you know, you know, this is definitely queer coded and um, there's definitely something going on between Valkyrie and Captain Marvel. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm happy for that to be your headcanon if that's what makes you happy. But equally, I, I keep banging this drum, but I think demonstrations of physical affection between friends, I think, is something that is actually a thing. And sometimes it's okay to leave that there. But as I say, if they wanted to make a storyline where Carol and Valkyrie were in, a, were in a, a relationship, cool, yeah, fine, I can I can handle that, that's, that's fine. I can see that making narrative sense. I think I am going to be slightly cynical because that is a quite platonic peck on the cheek that can easily be edited out if you're selling the movie to particular markets that aren't into that sort of thing whilst allowing people who are complaining about lack of LGBTQIA plus representation to sort of see that there. And that that feels a little manipulative to me, but it's a minor thing. And actually, I quite like as a as a moment between characters. I really liked it. Uh, it's I can't help myself being cynical and thinking about it, perhaps too deeply. So, you know, that's on me, really, not the movie. Then we have Goose, the flurkin who is, I know, called Chewie in the comics, and I'm genuinely unclear why he's not called Chewie in the movies, but he's called Goose, which is clearly a Top Gun reference. And again, I'm happy with that. That's fine. But because he's a flurkin, not a cat, it means he's bigger on the inside. Something that's demonstrated quite early on when Ms. Marvel sees the whole tentacles shooting out of the mouth and a goose eating people thing which she has the appropriate response to she's utterly horrified <laughs> and actually because we know it's goose and we know what's going on uh, that reaction is quite funny and i enjoyed it very much 
But plot device, because when everybody is on board Nick Fury's space station and the space station is clearly going to be destroyed and there aren't enough escape pods, we discover that the weird sort of crystalline egg things that people have been finding all the way through the movie on the space station are in fact flurkin eggs and they hatch into lots of little flurkins, which means that because flurkins will eat things and then cough them back up again, if we get all the people on the space station eaten by flurkins, we can put the flurkins onto the escape pod. The escape pod can escape and then people can be regurgitated and they will be safe. And so you actually do get a station announcement that says, allow yourself to be eaten by the flurkins. Do not resist. And that, again, is quite funny. And you get the brilliant scene where Captain Marvel and Nick Fury are literally herding cats. Just another brilliantly comedic beat in this brilliantly comedic movie. And I think the final comedic beat I'm going to mention, I mentioned last week in passing, is the Disney princess planet. Uh, for political reasons, Carol is sort of technically married to the bloke who's in charge. And it's all good. They have a perfectly amicable relationship. They are just friends. Uh, it's, it's all just a legal title type thing. But it does also mean that she is a princess on that world. Not only that, it's a world where people communicate by singing. And apparently, if you don't sing, they can't understand what you're saying, even though they're singing in English, which I choose to think is just a translation issue for our benefit as viewers. And in fact, they would be singing in something different. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. It's a it's a MacGuffin. It's a joke. And it's a funny one. And it works. And it involves Carol Danvers' flight suit being transformed into a proper Disney princess ball gown. And just the concept of that is hilarious. What's even funnier is the reaction of Monica Rambeau and Kamala Khan, who are standing on the sidelines of this ball, watching Captain Marvel dancing with the prince and communicating in song. And it's just, just hilarious. And then we get that juxtaposed with a real action sequence where our big bad has come to steal the planet's water in the way she stole the atmosphere from the, the Skrull planet. And we have Kamala and Monica and Carol in a sort of fighter spaceship thing. And Carol is determined that they're not going to jump into hyperspace. They're going to stay and fight and protect this world because it matters to her. And Kamala is making the very reasonable point that we can't help anyone if we're dead. And it's actually Kamala who takes command and punches the ship through the jump point and escapes against Carol's instructions and wishes because it's the right thing to do. And it's great to see Kamala having that maturity and actually being the one to say, look, I understand why you don't want to leave, but we have to. Because the bangle that's stuck to my wrist, we cannot let that fall into the big bad's hands. And we can't help anyone if we have been destroyed. That, again, was nicely done and it was real character growth. I, I could talk at much, much more length about this, but I'm not going to. Because I just want you to go and see this movie. It's really, really good. 
It hasn't done very well at the box office, and I really think that's a shame. I think it deserved much better than it's been given. I think it deserved better promotion. I think it deserved less aggro from a certain section of fandom. And it's just it's just brilliant. It is, if you'll forgive the phrase, a marvel. So go watch. Just to clear up a point of continuity and get to the end credit sequence, because, you know, I might as well at this point. Some of you will only be familiar with Ms. Marvel from the comics. Now, you will note that in the comics, she died and then came back as a mutant. That has not happened in the MCU. Kamala Khan never died in the MCU. I'm not saying she never will, but she hasn't yet. And although it has been acknowledged in the TV show that she is a mutant, mutants are not yet really a thing in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They've been hinted at. It's been acknowledged that Ms. Marvel is in fact a mutant, but nothing big has been made of it yet. We have no X-Men. Except... At the end, Monica makes what appears to be a big sacrifice. There's a jump point that will steal our son unless we can close it. And Monica is the person who can do that. She, her ability, her power allows her to absorb the energy from Kamala and Captain Marvel. And she can then go and release that energy into the jump point, closing it down. But Captain Marvel realises too late that the only way she can do that is if she's on the wrong side of the jump point when it closes. And Carol tries to stop her, but fails. Monica always knew that was the price of what she was going to do. So it's a noble sacrifice. And we end with the idea that Monica's not dead. We just need to find her. And then we have the end credits. And then Monica wakes up. And she's in a hospital bed. And next to her hospital bed is her mum who is still alive and wearing a superhero costume. And then into the hospital room comes a big, blue, furry bloke in spectacles, played by Kelsey Grammer, who also played Beast in the Fox X-Men movies. And there is a brief conversation in which Beast tells Monica that, yes, we think you came from another reality. Uh, you would have died out there, but Binary found you. Binary is a superhero name that has previously been used by Monica Rambeau in the comics. But now, clearly, applies to Monica's mum. And Beast also says something about needing to go and update Charles. Clearly, Charles Xavier. So, are we going to get the Fox version of the X-Men in the Marvel Universe? I don't think so. I think this is still a multiverse proposition. But through the multiverse idea, Fox's X-Men are appearing in Marvel movies. We had Patrick Stewart as Professor Xavier in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. We are getting Hugh Jackman as Wolverine in Deadpool 3. And now we have Beast, played by Kelsey Grammer, in the Marvels. So stuff is happening here. 
And, you know, that's a nice little tease into what might be the future of the Marvel Universe or the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I honestly think that that future is truly bright. Although I think it is going to be different than it was at first envisioned. I don't think it's going to go the way they meant it to go. But about that, more later in a different show. For now, we will leave that just there. I'll tell you what is disconcerting. After so many years of at least one and sometimes two Marvel movies a year, we haven't got anything now until what, 2025? And maybe not even then if the news is to be believed. This news really changes everything. Yeah, it's a sad Spock kind of news day, I'm afraid. Um, the news from Marvel is that, well, if you've been following the news, you will know that the next big thing in the Marvel Cinematic Universe was going to be Kang the Conqueror, as portrayed by Jonathan Majors. He was going to be the new Thanos, if you like. Interesting choice of villain. He's not necessarily a major Marvel villain, but in a, in a very real sense, neither was Thanos. So that all tracks and works and is fine and very possibly dandy. Except if you've been following the news, you will also know that Jonathan Majors, the very talented actor who plays Kang, turns out, at least allegedly, to not be the nicest person. There are accusations of abuse and violence and all kinds of unsavouriness. And although Majors has played Kang in Loki, two seasons of Loki now, and has played Kang in a Marvel movie already, he's in Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania, it is reported, at least, that Disney and Marvel are looking at severing their ties with this guy, because talented actor he might be, but he turns out not to be the sort of person they want to associate themselves with. Now, does that mean dropping Kang or does that mean recasting Kang? I don't know that a decision has been made, but clearly Marvel is thinking along those lines. When you couple that with the unavoidable fact that this current phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe has not been universally positively received, it is actually not that surprising that they might be looking at cutting their losses and going in a different direction. In some ways, I hope they don't. I hope they recast Kang. I, I do understand why they might not want to continue to work with Jonathan Majors while all of this is hanging over him. And indeed, why, if they believe the accusations to be true, and honestly, they seem to be, 
uh, why they wouldn't want to associate with him in, in any case, actually. So I get that, but I'd, I'd kind of like to see them stick to their guns narratively and not abandon this storyline and, and just do something clever and interesting to change the actor. I think that is doable. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. Um, and in other sad spot news, I, I, I do think it's just worth looking over at uh, the site formerly known as Twitter and at the increasingly unhinged rantings of its boss. Not because I like pointing fun and laughing at Elon Musk in his distress, although, you know, there's some attraction to that. Yes, I am that shallow. But actually because it underlines something. First of all, um, the thing he's in the news for this week is having a bit of a rant in an interview about how the advertisers who are not advertising on Twitter anymore because they don't want to be associated with all his Nazi nonsense are blackmailing him and how he will not respond well to blackmail. Uh, he actually said that they could all go and F themselves. And honestly, whilst I can see that you might get emotionally involved and take the actions of people who don't like what's going on with the thing that you run personally, if you're a professional, you do not let that show in public. So there's that. Um, but also, what does he want? What is what is this sense of entitlement that makes him think that just because he has a platform, people have to advertise on it? People are always at liberty to not support things they don't like. I wouldn't mind, but that's a point that he would make about the things he doesn't like. So, yeah. The only reason for reporting it at all, actually, is because it underlines the fact that social media platforms cannot exist without revenue. They cannot exist without somebody somewhere paying the bill. That is often advertising. If it isn't, then something else is being sold to make up that funding. And that's something that's being sold? Almost certainly you. So please bear that in mind if you're going on social media. If you put stuff on social media, the people who own that platform are probably selling that stuff to somebody. So be aware of that and be careful how much of yourself you reveal online. Here endeth the lesson, which was a very short, boring, preachy part this week. Be careful online. That's all I'm saying. Anyway. This news really changes everything. This week, again, we can accept that the jingle is hyperbolic because this news really changes nothing. Anyway, we are getting very close to the top of the hour, which means that it's time to wrap things up. Uh, you may have noticed I have not, in fact, reviewed the Daleks in colour, which can still be seen on the BBC iPlayer and was broadcast on the actual 60th anniversary of Doctor Who. The reason I didn't is because I've got a lot I want to say about it. And it's going to lead me into a massive discussion of Doctor Who as a thing. And so I think I'm going to save talking about it until I can talk about it with somebody else. And the person I particularly want to talk about it with is not currently available for that kind of thing. So we're going to pause it. But I would point you at it on the iPlayer. It's actually rather good. Anyway, we are out of time. We will see you next week. 
with news of more new Doctor Who. Come on. Until then, be kind to yourself, be kind to everybody else, and above all else, stay geeky. <laughs>